0: Everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low-carbon future. We sit down with those changemakers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I'm Lara Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etienne. Let's jump in. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm here with uh, Ben Jodet of RevTerra. Uh, ben and I have known each other for a very long time, uh, and I've had the, the benefit of, of seeing his journey. Um, RevTerra uh, fundamentally is, is, a, is a flywheel business, but it's not like any flywheel business we've ever seen before. So I'd I'd love, Ben, for you to tell us about what you guys are doing at RevTerra. Sure,
1: yeah, thank you, Jason. Um, Essentially, we're developing a modular energy storage system. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, we're leveraging an off-the-shelf existing technology, which is flywheel-based energy storage. So essentially, you're spinning up a large steel disk to high speeds Mm -hmm. to store energy. Um, and then slowing it down to discharge. And we are specifically using this in the context of high power electric vehicle charging. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing differently than previous flywheel energy storage companies is primarily related to the bearing technology. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the limitations with flywheels historically is the very low efficiency. Um, And then there's some other limitations that I can get into later, but uh, essentially we are Uh, Eliminating that particular obstacle with our bearing technology and making it so that flywheels can store energy just as efficiently as lithium ion batteries. Then we can leverage all of the inherent benefits of flywheel energy storage, which is long cycle life, um, high power density and non-toxic byproducts. Mm -hmm. So you can make it out of recycled steel. You can recycle it at the end of the lifespan. system so it has a pretty low environmental impact
0: Mm -hmm. and that would be compared to like batteries in the same application um so you mentioned like there's a cycle life difference like talk to me a little bit about some of the challenges we're seeing with current battery technology where maybe this is a better fit
1: yeah i mean it uh so it depends on the application Mm -hmm. um i think electrochemical batteries are a really good fit obviously for mobile Mm -hmm. applications like uh, electric vehicles high energy density Mm -hmm um and you're not cycling it all the time so you're cycling it maybe once every couple of days
0: that's like a charge discharge yeah charge discharge
1: is one cycle um so if you charge your car once every few days the battery's gonna last a very long time Mm -hmm. if you have seven thousand cycles um but if you try now to use it in an application where you have to cycle it charge and discharge five or 10 Mm -hmm or 15 times per day, then you run into issues with the lifespan Mm -hmm. and you may have to replace that battery a lot more frequently than you would in an application like um, mobile application. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it fits into electric vehicle charging specifically. And there's a couple of other applications um, that I can talk about, but essentially you have a battery that's stationary at the EV charging station that's charging the battery on the car, mm. um, so that battery that's stationary at the charging station has to cycle multiple times per day, uh, and so that's an area where we see some limitations mm-hmm. with chemical electrochemical batteries, some pretty strong limitations that we're trying to overcome with an electro mechanical solution.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I've heard uh, that's different about the the charging infrastructure is. Um, like with the I guess gas stations today, the, the the current way we fill up and charge our cars, right? Like if you think about it that way. There's something like twenty to one gas stations per car or something like that. Right. And you're looking at me like my number is like wrong. You said twenty, 20, 20 gas stations. Twenty per cars every car. per okay. 20 cars yeah, per yeah. gas station okay. in America. Yeah. And, and and kind of the prediction is you're gonna have like almost a one-to-one ratio of of cars to um charging stations. In the future, in part because the charging takes longer and in part because maybe you have a charging station at home, but like the, the I guess the, the the way to describe it is like the duty cycle almost on EV charging is different because when you go to a gas station, today it's it's a bad experience if you, if you have to wait in line or if you have to spend more than three minutes kind of getting your car filled up, um if you're constantly like having cars lined up to like to use uh, an eV charging station. Like what? What what kind of problems does that present for a charger? I guess.
1: Well, yeah. So I mean, there's kind of backing up a little bit. So mm-hmm. you have low power chargers, okay. which people have at home. Okay. And those are relatively inexpensive. And if you have, you know, a garage, mm-hmm. then you can charge your car overnight. That's probably the most efficient way mm-hmm. for um, for that scenario. And then if you're taking a road trip or you're driving a significant distance or you don't have a garage where you can park your car and charge, then you're probably going to have to charge your car somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And in that scenario, you probably want a fast charger. Mm -hmm. Um, There may be cases where you could charge at work or something like that. But if you're on the go, then you would want a fast charger and there's different levels of fast charging. So there's, um, you know, level two, level three, level three can go range anywhere from 50 kilowatts to 350 kilowatts Mm. and 350 kilowatts is you know quite a bit of power um if you had eight of those running at the same time you'd be consuming about as much power as a one million square foot uh building okay does so you know it requires some infrastructure upgrades and there's really yeah there's basically two ways to do it either you Upgrade the infrastructure so you get the utility company involved, you bring in additional distribution lines to supply, Mm -hmm. you know, let's say you had 10 DC fast chargers, that would be 3.5 megawatts Mm. of power. And in that case, uh, you know, you could essentially charge cars back Mm -hmm. to back. But in most cases, the, you know, the penetration Mm -hmm. of electric vehicles is not that high. Mm. So you wouldn't have. At most charging stations, cars continuously coming back to back. Okay. especially let's say you're driving from Houston to Austin and you want to stop for a charge. There's not going to be a continuous, most likely uh, line of cars, fast charging just because of the number of EVs on the road right now. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of cases, it would make more sense to have some kind of a buffer. So mm-hmm. you don't actually spend that time and money to upgrade the infrastructure and bring in additional uh, power lines, distribution lines you would simply put an energy storage system and that energy storage system would slowly charge from whatever connection you have on site. Mm-hmm. And then it would discharge really quickly at high power to the EV mm-hmm. charger. So you would en- enable that fast charging. Um, and you could probably charge, uh, you know, and with our system, you could charge two to three cars, um, back to back, depending on the size of the batteries and the number of modules there. But that's those are kind of the range of options.
0: Okay, so so in many ways the, the driver for this is because people don't want to put in the big honk and transmission line and whatever substation you need for. Did I hear you say like three point five megawatts if for for ten? If, if you had to do ten, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So it's an infrastructure bottleneck, really. Okay. Um and another way to think about it is if you have you know if you have uh, like a water mm-hmm. faucet or something, mm-hmm. and you wanted to have you know a high flow rate with that water you'd have to bring in an additional pipeline Mm. to supply that water instead of bringing in the pipeline if you only need that high flow rate once in a while you can just put a water tank Mm. at the site that water tank can accumulate from the very low uh, flow rate water and then you could dump it really quickly whenever you need it so that's the analogy.
0: I think I had that slide in my pitch deck at one point. Oh, Because really? I was doing hybrid power. And it was the same thing okay. for our yeah, gas yeah. turbine um, because we needed to dump power really quick. And, okay. so, and, and we this wanted the ultra caps, right? Because we went with short discharge. We were dealing with like six second cycles. So for us, oh. in our application, it, it made a lot of sense. And we were trying to deal with the fact that the gas turbine took half a minute to get where it needed to go in terms of running effectively. Um, and uh, ours was on a fully remote system, or a fully... Uh, disconnected system so all oh. the like power management had to be done within our um our gas turbine unit mm-hmm. uh, but literally had like a bathtub <laughs> in our slide deck okay yeah feeling of discharge yeah I generally understand the water yeah, yeah the water analogy yeah yeah good and 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 how did you um you said you were working on the bearing technology and that's kind of the the aha uh, technology where, where did that technology come from
1: so it is related to some of the work uh that mm-hmm. I was doing in grad school. So I was studying new superconnecting materials mm-hmm. uh, during my PhD. And one of the core components of the bearing is uh high temperature uh superconnecting materials. So um yeah, tangentially related to the work I was doing in grad school. And I developed it around that time and received, you know, got some IP on it later, mm-hmm. uh, a few years later, and then was thinking about commercializing the bearing itself, um, you know, the the magnetic bearing technology mm-hmm. itself, but was really interested in energy storage and trying to enable a clean uh, enabler mm-hmm. of renewable power and electrification. So kinetic energy storage was just, um, you know, has a lot of inherent benefits. And I thought with the magnetic bearing, we could overcome some of those limitations.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you, you said a, a keyword there. It's a high temperature um, superconductor. It's not. Uh, let's break down what that actually means.
1: <laughs> yeah. So a superconductor is a material that can conduct electricity with no resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, so normally metals like copper, um, you can use them to conduct electricity, but they have resistance because mm-hmm. the electrons are bouncing around. Mm-hmm. Um, in a superconductor, when you cool them below a certain temperature. The electrons uh, pair up together mm-hmm. and they move through the material without bumping into um, the other atoms there. So it has some other interesting properties like mm-hmm. trapping magnetic fields. Um, and that trapping magnetic fields part of the equation is what we're leveraging mm-hmm. in our system with the magnetic levitation. And high temperature is a relative term. So it's liquid nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Temperatures, but it's relative to liquid helium temperatures, which um, other superconductors had operated before the discovery of the high-temperature mm-hmm. superconductors. So that's why they're called high-temperature, um, relative to the very low temperature.
0: And, and from like a cost basis, it's it's easier to get liquid nitrogen, or we, we know how to produce it, even right, as opposed to helium. I don't even know where I would get liquid helium.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, liquid helium um, is generally a byproduct of some other um, manufacturing Mm -hmm. processes. And it's a very relatively limited Mm -hmm. uh, quantity for research purposes. And and several years ago, there was kind of a shortage Mm -hmm. of liquid helium. So a lot of research labs were... Affected by that and tried to switch to what what are called cryogen free systems. So, but just to be clear, our system doesn't actually use liquid okay. nitrogen. Okay, it uses um, something called a cryo cooler. So, okay. it is a very pretty simple electromechanical device. Basically, um, you know, uh, a linear motor accelerating a piston back and forth at sixty hertz um, and pushing a gas across a heat exchanger to uh, generate a temperature gradient. So, we're Using that because it's um, obviously more suitable for a commercial device than mm. uh, liquid nitrogen. Gotcha. But uh, in a lab, typically people might use liquid nitrogen because it's just very easy and cheap to come by.
0: Yeah, but it—I it, guess uh, it's in a temperature regime where we we know how to manage it. We we know how to create it with the cryocooler. Yeah. And so yeah. That, liquid nitrogen
1: temperatures are very are pretty. Uh, accessible.
0: Okay. And, and, yeah. and that, that's kind of what enables this to happen now in terms of the, the technology barriers. Um, and, and when we think about um, the product itself, like you're, you're making a flywheel, we know you're addressing this kind of edge challenge with the grid to support EV infrastructure. Who buys the actual product and, and what is the product that are usually you're, they're looking at buying today when you think yeah. about bringing this to market?
1: So there's a few different uh, potential customers here uh, in the market. So one type of customer would be a uh, private company that's developing a high power EV fast charging network. Mm. And that company might also have the hardware uh, or be a hardware developer of the actual fast charging hardware, but not have the energy storage part of it and want to mitigate or reduce their time to install the chargers and their infrastructure Cost mm-hmm. and it kind of depends if they're going to own and operate the charger themselves or um, if they're going to sell it to somebody else. So, whoever's doing, whoever's ultimately paying for that cost of, uh, you know, installing and um, upgrading that mm-hmm. that infrastructure would probably be the customer. So, yeah, EV fast charging network developers and that could also be utility companies. So, there's some utility companies that are actually developing fast charging networks, Hmm. or they offer it to some commercial industrial customers as, um, part of their offering. So those are a couple of, uh, potential customers in the EV charging space that we've been talking to. And then there's other applications beyond, uh, electric vehicle charging that we've been looking at. Um, and one of the most notable ones is backup power for Hmm. commercial and industrial settings. So as we progress. Along this trend of electrifying everything, mm-hmm. the power quality issue mm-hmm. uh, becomes more notable, and it's pretty critical to have clean, continuous, uninterrupted power for a lot of these commercial industrial uh, companies that are that have a lot of electrified processes, whether it's semiconductor manufacturers, mm-hmm. uh, plastic. Manufacturers, data centers, um, all of these types of customers are, you know, potentially having issues with small voltage drops or sh- very short power outages. So, because of the high power to energy ratio, um, our system is pretty suitable for for that application as well.
0: Yeah, and so like a, a voltage drop is, is like when we talk about power quality, a voltage drop is when it goes below 120, and or the frequency changes. And that's just bad for equipment that expects to be receiving like a 120 volt or or 60 hertz, right? Yeah,
1: so there would be a range of, Mm -hmm. you know, different types of equipment Mm -hmm. and what that equipment can tolerate. So some equipment, like a large rotating piece of of machinery that has like an induction motor on it or something, probably could tolerate a little bit of a voltage Mm -hmm. drop or a small frequency drop. But there's other more sensitive pieces Mm. of equipment that could not tolerate that. And whether it's because the equipment itself would be damaged or because the process that it's running would be interrupted.
2: Mm. Mm -hmm.
1: And a lot of times it's that the process would be interrupted. And an example of that, like the plastic manufacturing, if you have a very short power interruption, you could basically, uh, damage the, or deform the plastic parts Mm -hmm. that are being generated. So you have to throw that away and then start over again. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of examples like that where the process is interrupted and then it takes, you know, like a half day or a day to mm-hmm. get things running again um, or even a few hours. But that's a lot of time and expense.
0: Yeah. So so a a, a five or 10 second interrupt power up interruption can cost like a whole day of work yeah. Is, yeah. is why that's that's a big deal. Interesting. Um, And and so it it sounds like part of the reason why that the time is now to bring the science kind of technology to market is is the compounding of like EV uh infrastructure changing over but also just the, the electrification of everything. Yes. And and the increasing sophistication of the kind of the grid companies to even put products at the edge of the grid. Yes. You
1: know? I I would agree with that. I think electrification in mobility and elsewhere is um That coupled with our existing electric Mm -hmm. grid infrastructure, which is designed around, you know, the developments in the earlier, you know, 20th century Mm -hmm. with primarily designed around alternating current Mm -hmm. generation and and loads. That, yeah, as we're progressing, there seems to be a highlight in deficiencies, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whether it's infrastructure bottlenecks, which we're trying to solve with the electric vehicle charging but also reliability and stability overall. So, um, you know, just to briefly mention another application of our technology, when you get to really high penetration of renewables on the electric grid or any any grid, for example, and Europe is dealing with this more than we are uh, at the moment because they, in some countries like the UK and Germany, they've progressed to mm. relatively high penetration of renewables. Um, but solar power, for example, pr- produces DC power. Mm-hmm. Uh, conventional generators produce AC Mm -hmm. and with conventional generators, not only do they produce AC power, but they have a physical um, inertia to them. So Mm -hmm. they, you have these large rotors that are spinning at 60 Hertz producing power. And because of that, if one of those generators goes offline, the others continue to uh, prevent the frequency from dropping because of that uh, mm-hmm. Inertia. It's basically mm-hmm. a flywheel effect. In mm-hmm. fact, they are basically acting as flywheels in that case. When we go to solar power with with DC, that's uh, called an asynchronous mm-hmm. power supply. So they don't have that inertia aspect to them, although you can uh, synthetically generate it with lithium ion batteries or other electrochemical energy storage with a virtual intermediary. It requires a lot of power electronics, um, kind of unclear how it works at 100%. Uh, renewables mm. penetration, so um yeah, basically, when you get to higher renewables penetration, you have this issue with grid stability, so one of the things that uh, we're really interested in is potentially enabling fully renewables powered grids with the same type of stability and inertia that has existed in conventional grids, because I mean, the stability of our electric grid is ultimately probably one of the most important things mm-hmm. um in our society,
0: yeah. I, I guess um, one of the things I remember is me pretending to remember electrical engineering. <laughs> yeah, we, we, you, know, you, you have your rotating mass, and that creates your little frequency at your 60 mm-hmm. hertz. And I remember we, we started to hook up uh, an inverter system, and that would also generate like 60 hertz. Mm-hmm. And I kept one, uh, and, and it was a load following kind of inverter. And I would look at it, and it would kind of need a reference signal to like yeah. know what to be at. Right, and if right. it didn't have the reference signal, it just it would, it would just kind of fall over and go, I don't know what the frequency is. No yeah. power. <laughs> yeah, those are grid following. Yeah, exactly. I That's mean, what I had a grid forming. I had a grid uh, following system. Yeah. And, and and like those two are not always compatible. Like mm-hmm. it kind of needs, it, it's got to decide if it's going to be the grid or it's got to decide exactly. if it's following. Exactly. And, and the question I think you're getting to is like, if we become 100% renewable, who's still setting the tone or who's setting the, The frequency and and making sure that it's it's at that sixty hertz. In some ways,
1: yeah. I mean, uh, that's an oversimplification. That's like a very gross oversimplification. (laughs) That's yeah. That's that's part of it.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Um, Or uh, so I think. uh, uh, You know, you you were um, you were you were born and raised here in Houston. I know you went to school like you're like a triple threat in Houston from an education standpoint in
1: uh, New Orleans. Okay. Yeah. And uh, moved here when I was one.
0: Okay. So, pretty much, (laughs) uh, I
1: guess you could say I'm from Houston. And then, uh, yeah, I, except for undergrad, which I did in Atlanta, Mm. um, I did, you know, high school and grad school in in Houston and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, postdoc in New Mexico and then back in Houston to start the company.
0: Mm -hmm. What did did you always know you'd be an entrepreneur?
1: No. Yeah. Um, Actually, Yeah, that is, I think secretly, Mm -hmm. I wanted to be Mm -hmm. an entrepreneur. Um, But in a way, I think PhD program is kind of an entrepreneurship type of experience. Mm -hmm. So, I, well, I guess what I mean is I didn't realize it at the time, not (laughs) secretly. Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was my main interest is developing something new Mm -hmm. uh, from scratch and seeing it into, uh, development mm-hmm. in, in the lab, you don't quite see something to into a commercial product, but you kind of do the first half of it, which is. You find a fundamental problem mm-hmm. and you come up with a solution to it, or you try You, mm-hmm. you, uh, research the problem and, and you solve it to some degree and you push the boundary of knowledge a little bit. But some of the skills are quite transferable. So the grant writing uh, research proposals, mm-hmm. you essentially have to pitch to your uh, thesis committee, your mm-hmm. funding agencies and all of that. Um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And once I kind of heard about or realized this whole thing about entrepreneurship, which I didn't really know a lot about during grad school, it seemed uh, really exciting.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think here in Houston, like a a lot of your peers who are in grad school have chosen not to make that leap or or they haven't seen that that path. Is that a like a knowledge question? Like it seems like you were introduced to entrepreneurship as a path and you said, oh, I could do this. Right. When did that? I don't think.
1: Yeah, I don't think I was actually because a lot of times. And I think this is probably a little bit different now. There does seem to be more, and I see schools like Rice, for example, have programs specifically to try to give exposure to grad students, Mm -hmm. to entrepreneurship, and maybe even fund some students to start companies and all that. for me, I didn't necessarily know about that, Mm -hmm. but I kind of stumbled across it during the development of some IP around the bearing technology um but yeah i would say to the extent possible mm-hmm. having that knowledge would at least give people the, ch- the choice to pursue this or that um and having some kind of funding opportunity helps a lot with the STTR programs mm-hmm. in in particular i think are extremely beneficial because if you're a grad student you can actually submit an STTR proposal with your pi your, your professor you can still be a grad student and then you know if it seems very promising then you can potentially spin it off as as mm-hmm. a company but
0: yeah. did did you guys do an STTR? I
1: did not. No, yeah. I did I did not do an STTR in in grad school. I went and did a postdoc in a completely different field. Oh yeah. Field. Yeah. And then
0: came back to it where would a student learn about i guess they just kind of google sttr these days or
1: yeah i mean uh so sttr sbir it's called the small business innovative research program Mm -hmm. so it is funded by the united states government and it provides non-dilutive grant funding for um i think american based Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. companies Um, i'm not sure if you have to be I don't think you have to be a citizen but I think it'd be like to be based in the US and majority
0: owned by US I think it's okay. the other thing. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um and and that program is there's basically the government funds that gives various departments funding to do that. So the National Science Foundation is one mm-hmm. um that's where I got funding for Revtera. Mm-hmm. but there's you know Department of Defense, Army, Navy, Air Force um there's yeah. uh, Arpa E, there's it's DOE, all, yeah. DOE yeah. all of these agencies, NASA mm-hmm. have funding to provide these SBIR programs, um, and really anybody can submit mm-hmm. a proposal if you if you put together a team, um, you know if you don't have somebody technical on your team, then it's probably a good idea to pair up with a university. If you, you know if you've seen a patent or something that that they have. And you Mm -hmm. want to try to transition it to a real world application. That's a, that's a pretty good way to do it.
0: Gotcha. And, and when you decided to start a company, you decided to stay here in Houston.
1: Yes. Well, um, yeah, pretty much. I, because I was in New Mexico for my Mm postdoc and then I did a postdoc at Rice. And around that time, uh, was when I started thinking about starting the company and I thought, um, so I was in Houston, but Houston just seemed like the perfect place for mm. an energy transition company that's building really large hardware Yeah, um, because yeah. of the existing infrastructure here with the oil and gas industry.
0: Yeah. So tell us a little more about kind of the resources you see here in Houston that, that helped you make that decision.
1: Right. So I guess you could split that into kind of like startup mm-hmm. resources and manufacturing resources. I think from the manufacturing point of view, there's a ton of machine shops, uh, engineers, mechanical engineers, machinists, all of that. So from the point of view of actually building the hardware and, and having the know-how um, around here to to deal with that, then you know, there's plenty of that here in Houston. Mm-hmm. From the startup ecosystem point of view, I think when I started the company, there was uh, a few Options around mm-hmm. here. So there was Houston Technology Center. Um, then that became Houston Exponential, and there was Station Houston, and mm-hmm. I think that was that was basically it that was, around we,
0: that time. We probably met at Houston Technology we did. Center. Uh, no? We, uh,
1: yes, we. I think we met at Houston Technology Center, and then we also met at Station Houston, having um, like a preliminary, early, early yeah. stage energy bar, yep. brainstorming yep. session.
0: Yep, yep.
1: Um, but yeah, I think now it, I mean, there's obviously more resources, but, um, yeah, I think at the time there were a couple of, uh, a couple of options and through Houston technology center, um, I got like a 25 K, um, investment from the McNair foundation Hmm. and Hmm. that allowed me to build a small benchtop demo system and and progress it I, from there
0: did we not realize that's where that, that benchtop unit came from it's funny how um yeah you got to piece together the different funding sources yeah to, to kind of move the technical ball forward yes yeah exactly. exactly interesting i i recall in the early days you were renting <laughs> space from a church yes <laughs> to build this well thing, that's yeah right? so i
1: was i was renting um yeah i I was renting space from a place called uh fruition technology labs okay. <clears throat> and they moved to another building in North Houston mm-hmm. and uh, to join up with another accelerator that was forming up there, that building uh, that accelerator kind of left. Mm. So the building was then purchased by the church. Um, but they were very friendly landlords uh, and they were very flexible. Mm-hmm. So I had, uh, essentially a lab on the second or yeah third floor and um there were some uh you know ac <laughs> issues at the time but yeah. um i think it was it was all fine and i was able to yeah build up the the demo yeah um, that was actually that you know, i got nsf funding and built the the one kilowatt prototype mm-hmm. there too
0: mm-hmm. interesting <laughs> one of the things that um is is fun sometimes is like that there are pitch events around town Mm -hmm. that like just didn't used to happen before and so like these guys at at digital wildcatters hosted one at um the heights like two weeks ago and i saw you know a bunch of entrepreneurs i I had met previously but like that's that's not something that existed very consistently um previously and and i think it's it kind of speaks to a vibrant and growing ecosystem here um and uh i think it's um it kind of shows that the you know the innovation community is evolving where um maybe it wasn't before and so like you know what maybe one of these hidden gems was like that that prize program that that you got that first investment from is that still something that people should apply to or? that
1: no longer okay. exists and yeah cuz so that was attached uh, to HTC that was kind of attached to HTC um, yeah. so yeah i mean i think ha- you know we don't have that many programs mm-hmm. like that in Houston um mm-hmm think there's uh maybe one at the moment but having more programs where it's an accelerator um, but you get some type of investment mm-hmm. into the company as part of the accelerator i think can be pretty helpful it's kind of like the y combinator mm-hmm. model where it sets some kind of evaluation mm-hmm. on your company you get some seed funding to maybe work on the company full-time or or at least part-time mm-hmm and build that initial thing mm-hmm. proof of concept demo maybe it's an app whatever it is um and if it's you or it gives you the resources to like bring somebody on else mm-hmm. on board but i think that first stage is pretty hard for a lot of people um you know myself included yeah. it's like getting across that gap
0: yeah um and so that, that kind of points to gaps in our ecosystem. So it sounds like having more like, accelerator plus prize programs is one where like there needs to be something put in there.
1: Yeah. I, I wouldn't even call it a prize. It's kind of like an investment. An investment so, okay. um, and so the accelerator gets skin in the game mm-hmm. and the entrepreneur gets uh, some seed funding. It attracts even more, mm-hmm. I would say, uh, Entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. um, high caliber entrepreneurs, to apply for those types of programs, but obviously, yeah, it requires more funding on the accelerator side to be able to do that. Um, But that is one thing that I think Houston could benefit a lot from.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a uh, an accelerator. Yeah, Um, when you think about uh, you know getting technology to market, do you have a, a sense of how things like the the Inflation Reduction Act is is like driving, like demand from strategic partners um, for you guys.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of movement because mm-hmm. of that Inflation mm-hmm. Reduction Act. It's definitely um, like a full time role to understand <laughs> mm-hmm. it and implement. Um, you know, develop towards uh, taking advantage of the Inflation Reduction Act, and a lot of the Um, a lot of it is also, you know, geared towards companies that have, uh, like a commercially available product and all Mm -hmm. that, but definitely there's a lot of additional interest in the space because of the inflation reduction Mm -hmm. act, just generally Mm -hmm. uh, speaking. And that I think has helped us as well.
0: Yeah. And, and, um, does that influence the way you think about building out building product or is that something where you're you're going to tackle it? Not, not really. Yeah. I
1: think you should develop a technology or a product to be able to, um, kind of compete or be successful without, mm-hmm. um, the incentive. So, you know, uh, it's definitely, it definitely helps mm-hmm. to have that, but I think you should always try to, you know, develop something that can compete with the landscape mm-hmm. without, um, without those incentives
0: yeah yeah uh, are, so that you know there, there's incentives for deployment like are the other things that like government or policy people should be thinking about if we wanted to accelerate innovation especially when you think about your own journey through
1: yeah i mean <clears throat> i think mentioned this a little bit but mm-hmm. the valley of death mm-hmm. is pretty difficult for um entrepreneurs and for transitioning technologies whether it's like from small scale to large scale, or lab to
0: commercial, yeah. so tell us tell us about what you yeah. mean by the Valley of Death. Like, it-
1: oh yeah, Valley of Death is essentially you have a technology or mm-hmm. yeah product that is demonstrated as a proof of concept, mm-hmm. and it's lab scale or benchtop scale. Mm-hmm. So you've proven it at that scale. Um, you have you know, some kind of product market fit probably, Mm -hmm. but you don't have a commercial size system Mm -hmm. and you don't have a pilot test yet. So you haven't proven it in a relevant context. Mm -hmm. In order to get there, you have to build up your technology and scale it up. And in order to do that, usually you need some substantial amount of funding
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and so that's what the value of death is basically getting from the smaller scale uh proof of concept to a commercial pilot and mm. you know commercialization of your technology. And to to some extent, like the SBIR SCTR can help with that. But oftentimes you may need even a little bit more mm. funding than that to really get it to the point where you can deploy it into the hands of a customer. So um and that's where sometimes I think entrepreneurs can get stuck because um, if you want to to raise funding as well, typically you need to have that uh, commercial traction, so.
0: Yeah, I think like an SBIR today is like, what, $225,000 maybe to start. I think and, they increased it to 275. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> I started a company at the wrong <laughs> time. Recently, yeah. and, then, and then there's like a multi-phase program. So in the second phase, um, you can get, um, like over like 36 months, it's like a million and a half dollars, depending on the program. And so kind of even though that sounds like a lot of money, when you're developing hard tech, that goes quick, <laughs> right? And so in some ways, the question is, is there a way to take that existing program and, and put more capital? In? And what, I'm, what we're hearing is, that especially at phase one, they're, they're continuing to increase the amount of capital available. It seems like that yeah.
1: they're doing that. Um, and it, it is agency specific as well. So I think NSF offers the most for a phase one. relative to others
0: yeah um tell me a little bit about the team at revtera
1: right now we have five Mm full-time people Mm -hmm. uh as well as a part-time intern Mm -hmm. um and the breakdown of those five people so it's me myself um patrick Mm -hmm. who's our cfo joined me uh in 2021 so a couple of years now just at the beginning of the series a fundraise And post uh, series A, we hired three engineers, uh, full-time engineers, Mm -hmm. uh, electrical engineer and two mechanical engineers. And uh, so, yeah, basically have like four people on the technical team and um, uh, Patrick as a CFO in the company. And I think the team so far is uh, working really well together. And, you know, obviously we have a lot more bandwidth than, uh, you know, to develop this. Uh, commercial scale system than we did several months ago we might hire another one to two engineers over the coming few months yeah. um, so we're we're looking around for additional mechanical
0: engineers yeah how, how did you find patrick because I, I feel like uh, you guys were were fundraising together and he's uh, such a gem
1: yes patrick is is awesome so we we met through a mutual friend that we have both known mm. uh you know for a very long time and I was talking to this friend about, you know, I'm looking to hire, uh, to bring somebody on board to help with the fundraise. And, uh, yeah, he was like, Hey, I know this guy, uh, is that rice. And so, uh, we connected and, and started, uh, chatting and, um, Patrick, you know, was uh, pretty interested in, in what, what I was doing. So, um, yeah, decided to, to join the, the effort mm-hmm. and, uh, I think we've worked pretty well together and, um, he's added uh, tremendously to the team.
0: So, yeah, he's a, you know, he's a trooper. Cause he, he jumped in with like two feet and did yeah. all the accelerators with you. Yes. Right? Yeah. We, what? yeah.
1: Oh, just on, no, like on accelerators. what, what accelerators
0: did you guys do end up doing together?
1: Well, uh, we did two actually accelerators mm-hmm. last year, one, and one of them is still ongoing. So okay. one was, uh, black and beach. Okay had an accelerator program called Ignite
0: X. Mm -hmm. Tell me about Black & Veatch, because I don't know them as a brand. Yeah.
1: So Black & Veatch is a large EPC, Mm -hmm. uh, engineering, procurement, construction Mm -hmm. firm. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of experience historically in electric infrastructure, Mm -hmm. uh, power infrastructure projects, large Mm -hmm. projects. And they did a lot of work uh, with Tesla on the Mm -hmm. superchargers as well and um so that was really uh, exciting because we got to you know participate in and learn from the apc on what uh, to kind of better our understanding of what our installations mm-hmm. might look like and uh, we have kind of an ongoing uh relationship with them even after the accelerator has ended mm-hmm. and then um the other accelerator what is the 35 mules mm-hmm. accelerator program so 35 mules is an accelerator um, hosted by Florida Power and Light, mm-hmm. Nextera. Um, so Florida Power and Light is uh, part of Nextera um utility company. It's a regulated utility based in Florida. And they have this accelerator program where it's on site. So it's a full-time, at least one person has to be full-time on site. And you get to um basically be connected with folks in various departments mm-hmm. um, within next era and uh, you get to test your value proposition mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. engineers um, you know, business development people, basically they find who you need to talk to within the utility company. Um, and they, they work really hard to, to make those connections and follow up meetings. Um, and you also get hundred K in non-dilutive mm-hmm. grant funding, mm-hmm. which is critically helpful for, companies. Um, no. So I would, I would say that's probably, um, those, those two programs were very,
0: uh, impactful. And so something that's changed since when I was doing my business is like that, that the, these corporate accelerators exist where there is a non-dilutive component, but in some ways your the acceleration is not to accelerate the business so you can pitch and raise money from angels the accelerator is so you can get to a product market fit internally and and they they kind of have a advanced seat at the table with making sure their needs are met. Is that is that a fair statement on the corp- corporate yeah. based yeah. accelerator programs?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say uh, that's that's fair. Like they would like to have, um, you know, be the first to, um, I guess, be part of mm-hmm. these new technologies and it's mutually beneficial. Yeah, so of course they get, um, exposure. The company gets exposure to these, I guess, you mm-hmm. know, cutting edge, new, new technologies, new products. Mm-hmm. And, and then as a startup, you obviously get access to this large, uh, mature company mm-hmm. that, that can help, you know, further your, um, product market fit.
0: Yeah. At, at an early stage. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, unfortunately, we're, we're running low on time. Um, tell us about something that our, our audience here could do to, to help support you as, as you think about the next 12 months at RevTerra.
1: Sure. So a uh, couple things. I mean, one is we are, as I mentioned before, uh, we're looking to hire a couple <clears throat> of uh, mechanical engineers. So if you're a mechanical engineer, um, have have some experience there and you're interested in working with an early stage startup um and you have some experience in uh early stage product design um mechanical engineering design Mm -hmm. then uh take a look at our uh website and and
0: and what's the website
1: it's www.revterra.io
0: okay i'll put that in the show notes okay (laughs) um and 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 how should people uh, look you up should they find you on linkedin
1: uh, yeah, LinkedIn, okay. I suppose, is the most uh the easiest way, okay. uh, to do that.
0: Cool. All right. Is there any parting thoughts you want to leave the audience with, like words of wisdom?
1: Words of wisdom. Um, pretty <laughs> pretty <laughs> nice one. I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I think, just generally speaking, um, for you know anybody considering mm-hmm. uh, starting a company or entrepreneurship, um you know, one of the most challenging parts is that that first Mm -hmm. uh, step of it. And my my advice on that is just focus on building something, Mm -hmm. um, something that can demonstrate uh, not necessarily like you have to build the final product or anything. Just focus on building something that demonstrates your, um, you know, your technical know how, even if it's not engineering, um, but your Uh, expertise in the field and Mm -hmm. something that you can show to potential partners, um, whether it's funding agencies, investors, etc. But it's just building that first um, thing, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, uh, a demo Mm -hmm. or a proof of concept that once you get there, um, it gets easier to
2: Mm -hmm. progress the company.
0: Mm -hmm. Cool. Thanks, Ben.